Hello once again and welcome into episode 8 of the KYR podcast. This is Paul Del Rio, Communications Director at Kentucky Realtors. Thanks so much for joining me. And uh, we've got a really interesting podcast today. As you may well be aware, the uh, Kentucky General Assembly just rounded out its uh, 2020 session. And uh, our Government Affairs Director, Richard Wilson, spoke with our lobbyist uh, at McCarthy Strategic Solutions, Amy Wycliffe. And they talked about kind of the unique aspects of this session, the challenges uh, that they faced uh, already with it being a budget year was a complex uh, one. But then with the COVID-19 pandemic and the effects of that, of course, that was a that was an interesting little wrench thrown into that works there. So they discussed the uh, the session and how it ended up, uh, what uh, looked like, what the landscape looked like with the bills that had passed and which ones hadn't, and just discuss um, the impact that we were able to have on the session. So tune in for that here shortly. And then following that, we actually have a great uh, little call that we participated in on May the 6th uh, with Senator Rand Paul. Dr. Paul joined us uh, in lieu of us being in Washington, D.C. for the NAR legislative meetings uh, here in early May. He was uh, kind enough to give us some time on a call and address uh, Kentucky Realtors and uh, field some questions as well. And uh, we had a really good discussion, a little over 30 minutes. Uh, and we really appreciate Dr. Paul's time uh, and uh, answering questions and giving us his sense of how things are going and uh, the short and long-term effects of the pandemic, uh, among other things. So just uh, with the pandemic uh, front of mind here, I just wanted to also remind everyone that you can find out a lot of information uh, that will affect you personally and in your business, your day-to-day business, on our website. We actually have a page, uh, COVID-19 page, dedicated to that, and it has a ton of resources on it. You can find it by just going to our website, kyrealtors.com, and the front banner that pops up uh, says uh, COVID-19 there. You can click that button to read more. Or if you just simply go to kyrealtors.com slash covid that's just C-O-V-I-D, kyrealtors.com slash C-O-V-I-D, and that'll take you right to that page. There's lots of resources about uh, the way uh, your business can run, uh, county clerk's offices, some contracts and forms, uh, information about listings, showings, and closings, office protocol, and then one of the bonus features uh, that you'll find on there are uh, recordings of our virtual town hall meetings that we've been having uh, over uh, weekly over the in the past few weeks, some really good information there. Uh, YouTube recordings, uh, if you've missed those or if you'd like to rewatch them. The most recent one uh, we put up was uh, about mental health, and uh, just as I'm recording this, uh, we have another one scheduled for tomorrow about leadership and how what uh, challenges leadership face uh, leaders face in this uh, this new time, as as everybody likes to call it. So just reminding you there, uh, kyrealtors.com slash COVID, lots of good information there, including a message from President Lester Sanders as well. So without further ado, I'd like to get into the interview uh, that Richard did, Richard Wilson did with Amy Wycliffe, uh, and we'll get to that right now. All right, Amy, thanks for joining us. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of uh, your busy schedule to hop on a call with us to talk a little bit about session and what we uh what to look forward to uh during the interim and and for the 2021 session uh how are you i'm doing fine how about you all doing well doing well just trying to uh i, I guess stay sane with uh, the kids running around the house all day and it's just a little different nowadays 
Yeah, adapting to the new normal, um, especially during the legislative session was um, definitely an experience, so. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, no kidding. I mean, how about you? You're, uh, I would think normally you would be on a vacation right now somewhere. If, if that, for the listeners that don't know, Amy is kind of a, just a little bit of a world traveler. Um, so did you have any vacations planned? That That's right. Yeah, I had a couple trips planned um, that unfortunately had to be canceled or delayed. Um, this is a big, typically I am um, away either in another country or in another city um, trying to just decompress from session um, but that's happening at home this year and but just grateful to be home and, and safe and healthy right now. I hear you I hear you all right so if you don't mind we can just go ahead and jump right in uh, to, to session talk um, what were your what were your uh, overall thoughts on on this session as it relates to realtors and just in general uh, since it was such a just a little bit of a different session this year. Uh, what were your thoughts? Yeah, you know, as it relates to realtors, I'll kind of answer that in two parts. Um, and as it relates to realtors, I think overall, um, I think we can count this session as a win. And I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the bills that passed and bills that didn't later on. But, you know, when you look at um, the situation that the House and the Senate was put in when COVID arrived in Kentucky um, around mid-March and the decisions that they were having to make um, of what I kind of call the funnel effect of where they had to really make a decision on what bills do we have to pass this session? What bills can wait until 2021? What are we going to do with the budget? I mean, there were a lot of big policy decisions that legislators um, were, were having to make. And I think at the end of the day, the good thing for realtors is that no harm was done. Right. We played a lot of defense on bills um, and had good conversations with legislators to make sure they were aware of any unintended consequences. Um, we, we got some things done, um, even in those final days. And so at the end of the day, I, I think it's a you know, we can call this session a win. Um, I think overall for the session, to your point, it, it was a it was the most interesting session I've ever I've ever lobbied. Um, when you look at the fact that mid-March. Um, the Capitol Annex and the Capitol were closed to the public and yeah. we're considered members of the public. And so just legislators and, and essential staff were allowed in um, for the remaining days of the session for basically a whole month. Um, and so trying to lobby um, without seeing people in person proved to be a little bit difficult. We had to get creative. Mm -hmm. um, but I think overall, we were able to to make sure that your voices were heard from the association. Yeah, absolutely. It, I guess different uh, when describing uh, this legislative session is that there's no other way to describe it, really. It, it was just different. Um, it, but it speaking was. of Go ahead. And one other thing that I would like to, to point out, you know, when when legislators decided to um, trim down the number of days in the legislative session, we lost seven legislative days. Yeah. And for those listening, that is a lot of time um, in, in the legislative world. Um, you can pass a bill through both chambers in, in five days if you needed to. And so to lose seven days um was a lot and so those were just you know that's just one of the things that we we had to contend with um due to covid yeah i mean especially during a a budget year uh losing seven days 
had to have been extremely difficult for the legislators uh, with, with the budget process. Mm -hmm. um, but speaking of, uh, you mentioned, you just kind of hinted, hinted towards it, or hinted to it uh, about some bills that we got passed uh, this session, one in particular in the, in the final days of session, uh, and that is Senate Bill 11, which is the uh, damage to rental property bill sponsored by uh, Senator John Schickel from Northern Kentucky. Uh, he's also chair of uh, Senate LNO committee, big, big friend of ours and uh, realtor champion. Um, but can you kind of talk us through or walk us through the process of, of those final days and, and particularly uh, Senate Bill 11 and how that got across the finish line? Absolutely. So Senate Bill 11, this was the, the second year for that bill to be introduced. Um, and, and thankfully, um, to your point, that, that bill got across the finish line this year. And it's currently sitting on Governor Bashir's desk, um, hopefully awaiting his signature so it becomes law. Um, you know, that bill came out of the Senate, um, a, a fairly simple and short bill. Um, got over to the House, um, and really by the time it got over to the House, and when the House decided to start passing and considering Senate bills, once they had finished um, voting out their House bill priorities, um, it, it really, when folks started to take a look at it, um, I think the, the Judiciary Chairman and Representative Jason Petrie um, and some other members of the House Judiciary Committee wanted to further define um, what the penalties look like. And I think overall the bill has been made better um, and it's a, it's a fair bill. Um, and so on the, the final days of session, Senate Bill 11 was considered one of those bills that the General Assembly wanted to pass. We are grateful to them for putting that on the list. Um, and, and hopefully that is a going to be a very positive policy change um, going forward for those who own rental property. Yeah, absolutely. We are extremely thankful uh, for, for those members of the General Assembly um, that, that wanted to get this bill across the finish line. But but speaking of, uh, well, I, I guess I'll mention the, the other bill that we supported this session uh, that uh, has already been signed by the governor is House Bill 98, which is dealing with attorney's fees. Uh, that was a Home Builders Association um, piece of legislation that, that our Quick response team voters to support. Mm -hmm. uh, but but going back to uh, some of the bills that um, did not, that, that we supported that did not get across the finish line. Uh, and, and one just kind of pops off or kind of comes to mind right away is the PVA task force bill mm -hmm. or, or resolution, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of talk us through that? I know we, we would like to see that uh, come up again, uh, possibly during the interim. Uh, I know KYR would like to be a part of those those discussions. Um, can you kind of talk us through that one? Absolutely, and I, and I think it's important to mention that that was sponsored by a realtor member, um, Representative Randy Bridges from down in the Paducah area, who's also a big friend of the association. Um, and you know, while that resolution did not make it through, I think there is still um, some hope that conversation will continue. Um, just because that resolution did not pass this General Assembly does not mean that the conversation about PBAs and maybe some improvements and how realtors can work together in a more efficient way with PBAs ultimately to help 
consumers and homeowners. Um, we will be looking to see if the Legislative Research Commission does appoint any special committees during the interim like they have in the past. Um, this, of course, could be one of those if they so cho chose to. Um, I think we'll, you know, appointing any special committees and, and how the interim session will work, I think will largely be dictated by where we are with COVID going forward and how many um, in-person meetings or if some have moved to virtual meetings. But I do think that the PVA conversation is one um, that will continue um, regardless um, in whether or not that's during this interim or whether or not that's a discussion that's had during 2021. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so another, uh, I guess, I guess another uh, issue that uh, KYR and our Government Affairs Committee uh, will probably be taking part of, or discussions that we'll be taking a part of uh, this this interim, is dealing with HOAs and uh, the HOA uh, bill that was sponsored by uh, Senator Ralph Alvarado uh, this this session that the QRT uh, ultimately voted to oppose. Um, can you kind of talk us through that one that, about talks that that probably will go on during the interim? Um, can you kind of just talk us through that one? Sure, absolutely. So the HOA bill, um, your QRT and members of leadership and, and, and staff spent a lot of time on this bill. Um, and as you said, we ultimately voted to oppose it, but that didn't mean that we stopped having conversations. Um, we're, we were very much engaged in dialogue with legislators who were supportive of the HOA bill, trying to bring some, and I, I think the overall intent is, is there and it's good. And I think we, we agree with the overall intent that there might need to be some um, overarching framework of how these HOAs um, are set up and, and um, take, for instance, what happens when one shuts down and how can you revive the bylaws and, and lots of different details. Um, that is one that we have committed to work on um, with stakeholders during the interim. Um, and stakeholders involve home builders, the bankers, um, and a variety of groups of folks who have an interest in HOAs. So I would expect that um, to get underway um, in the summer so that we can hopefully find some ways to compromise and come back with a good common sense bill um, that addresses the, the needs that the um, legislators want to accomplish um, and hopefully bring something back that we agree on in 2021. So looking back, or excuse me, looking ahead to the 2021 session, but also keeping an eye on, on what we did during the 2020 session, um, what are some issues or I guess hot topics uh, that, that could come up in the 2021 session. And you know, uh, since they'll be having another budget year next year, uh, sales tax on services could pop up um, or rate on um, gas tax, stuff like that. You know, what, what, what are some kind of hot topics or, or issues that we should be on the lookout for? Yes, so you raise a good point there um, to talk about the budget first. Um, one of the things I just want to make sure your members are aware of that one of the um, more unprecedented, but I think responsible moves that the General Assembly made was to um, 
only pass a one-year budget during this legislative session because of the unknowns. We simply don't know what um, the revenues are going to look like. We know revenue estimates are going to be down, and so um, they passed a very bare-bones but responsible budget um, that funds the essential pieces of government um, but allows them to come back in 2021 to pass the second year of that budget. So we'll have better information about what revenues will look like and what they can, can go forward with. Um, with that, I would assume that there will be an accompanying revenue update bill, um, which is where any tax changes would be. Um, there really weren't any tax changes made this legislative session um, due to COVID, um, bare minimum, just some cleanup language more so. Um, but, I, you know, that's something that we're going to be um, really paying attention to in 2021 is, are they going to come back and need more revenue? Um, and where would they look to go for more revenue? I think that's gonna be a conversation that we're gonna be in for the next several years. So obviously keeping our guard up about um, sales tax on services. Um, you mentioned um, the gas tax. I think there will be an increased discussion about infrastructure funding overall and really um, improving and modernizing the way that we fund our infrastructure across the state. I think legislators are going to be looking at ways for um, to put people back to work and to engage the workforce again. And so, um, you know, in, um, increasing and modernizing the way that we fund our infrastructure is a way to do that. Yeah, <clears throat> I guess so. Uh, just thinking about this, uh, one, well, I guess one provision that was in uh, the budget bill was the increase in the LLET tax mm -hmm. uh, that ultimately got taken out. Um, we were opposed to that provision of, of the increase and we were thankful and glad to see that taken out. I guess that could come back. Uh, you could see that come back in, in the future. Um, I, I think the General Assembly um, made it very clear after hearing from organizations like the realtors and other small businesses um, that that is just not a direction that they want to go. Um, I think, you know, they want to keep taxes as low as possible, especially on our, on our small businesses um, and those people who are creating jobs. So it's something we'll be looking for. Um, but, you know, I think the General Assembly made a pretty good stance on the LLET, LLET tax increase that was proposed originally. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So now that session has ended, uh, mm -hmm. we can now look, look forward to campaign season. I, I know that's a that's a season that both of us uh, really enjoy uh, and really look forward to. Um, you know, what, what can you tell us uh, about campaign season coming up? Well, I think first of all, let's remind everybody that the primary date has been pushed back to June 23rd due to COVID. And I would say that I expect some changes in what that election itself really looks like. Um, there is a duty that I know the governor and the secretary of state have both talked about of, of keeping the poll workers safe. Um, and keep in mind, a lot of those poll workers um, are in that age who are more susceptible um, to COVID related symptoms. And so trying to figure out a way to um, administer the election in the most safe way possible. Um, to, I, I believe, you know, we'll see probably some expansion of more absentee like voting um, in, in, the, in the June primary election. 
Um, so keep an eye on that. I think we'll be hearing more about that here in the next couple weeks from both the governor and the secretary of state of what that what that June election will look like. Um, but as far as on the ground, um, this is a fun season. You know, you said it, we, we enjoy this, this part of the cycle. Um, and I would really encourage your members to, to pay attention to the races that are in their local areas. Some of these races only have primaries. Um, some of these races only have general elections. And so I would encourage your members to reach out to candidates on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, and get to know them. And go ahead and start using this time period to educate the candidates about issues that are important to Kentucky realtors. Um, we don't wanna wait until someone wins the election to start that education process. We wanna go ahead and start building those relationships now. And I'll also make sure that we're looking at you know, look at the way that legislators in your district voted um, and, and remember those items as you are um, out there kind of engaging with candidates and, and say thank you as well. If, if the legislators who are incumbents um, have supported you and have um, voted with you and have had an open door and allowed to have that open dialogue, remember to say thank you along the way as well. That is a... Uh... Yeah, very smart. Um, the whole, the thank you goes a long, long way um, when, when you're interacting with uh, legislators. Um, but it, it kind of made me think about SPCs uh, during your uh, with your response just then. Uh, SPCs, if if you're if you're listening to this, um, as Amy said, go ahead and reach out to your your member. Uh, start start having conversations, um, you know, about what happened in the 2020 session, but also conversations uh, about the 2021 session. Mm -hmm. So um, if you have, you know, any, any questions as far as talking points or just questions in general uh, about pieces of legislation, contact me uh, and I, I can work with Amy and we can get work up a response and get that to you. Um, but Amy, is there, before I let you go, uh, is there any anything else that you would like to um, bring up to our members as far as, you know, what to be on the lookout for? Yeah, I'll leave you with a little fact that I think is interesting as we try to look back at the at this session and all the different aspects that we had to deal with. There were a total of 932 bills filed. 127 of those bills actually passed both chambers and are eligible to become law. So 13.6% of bills filed this session made it through. So I say that because I think when we, th oh. when we think about, oh gosh, we only had two bills that we supported that made it through the process, in the grand scheme of things, you know, our advocacy worked um, yeah. because there was that funnel effect um, and a limited number of bills that were actually considered this session. And a large part of that was due to COVID. And so um, I just wanna say thank you to the QRT and to the Government Affairs Committee and to your leadership team as well, because there were times when we needed people to reach out to legislators when we couldn't physically be in the Capitol, it was so important for your members to engage with legislators via email, via text, and via phone call. And so we were able to still have an act and be very active with the General Assembly, despite the differences, the different situation we found ourselves in. Um, so kudos to all those members who helped us along the way. Um, I always appreciate being part of your team and um, look forward to 2021. Absolutely. Amy, we appreciate you, everything you do for us. 
And we look forward to uh, continued discussions during the interim on a variety of topics. So thank you again for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. We really appreciate Amy uh, making some time and summing up what happened this past session. And as I mentioned before, we're going to get into a discussion we had with uh, Senator Rand Paul. He was kind enough to join us uh, in lieu of us being there in Washington and answer some questions and, and talk about some pressing issues. So without further delay, here is President Lester T. Sanders introducing the summit with Senator Rand Paul. Okay, well, good morning, Realtor family. It's always good to spend time with you. I hope that you and your families are doing well. Normally, this meeting would take place in Washington, D.C. during our legislative session. Uh, this year, however, they're virtual. And we would uh, reserve a room at the Capitol, and our senators and congressmen would come and visit us, educate our members on what, uh, what's happening or what we can look to hear from uh, Washington uh, in the near future. Uh, one of the most important things that we do uh, as realtors is advocating for our membership's business interest and private property rights. It's the first thing mentioned in our strategic objective. We advocate locally, across the Commonwealth, and at the national level through our Realtor uh, Political Action Committee, RPAC, through our lobbyist, our CEO, Steve Stevens, uh, and uh, our Government Affairs Director, Richard Wilson, who are both on the line as well. Along with those personal contacts, and relationships. We need local members in communities that can help us communicate with our leaders. There are federal political coordinators or also known as FPCs. And we're honored to have with us today the junior senator from Kentucky out of Bowling Green, Senator Rand Paul. To do that uh, introduction, I'll turn it over to his federal political coordinator, our dear member and friend, Lonnie Gantz. Thank you, President Sanders, and I want to welcome everyone to the call that's joining us today throughout the state of Kentucky that um, are proud to be realtors in our, in our Commonwealth, and even more proud to, to be able to recognize and introduce into the call today our, uh, our wonderful senator uh, and supporter and friend and one that uh, champions the causes through, whether it be through uh, health education, and labor and pension uh, committees that he sits on and, and works uh, tirelessly with that and Homeland Security and government affairs and certainly small business and entrepreneurship. So to, to get right into the call, and I know we have uh, a lot for him and would love to hear from uh, Dr. Rand Paul, who is joining us. Senator Paul, thank you uh, for spending time with us this morning. I know you are jammed with the schedule. So we want to uh, save as much time possible for you to be able to uh, field questions uh, after you're um, um, in, into what you want to talk about. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Lonnie. And thanks, everybody, for joining on the phone call. My first thought is all the money you guys have saved by not flying up here, we should have a big party when everybody can get back together. I think all the money you save, we could have a pretty good party uh, in Bowling Green uh, to talk about issues and to uh, hopefully rejoice when this uh, – uh, epidemic or pandemic is gone. I think we have uh, passed the worst of it, and I think the good news is that Kentucky, um, being a rural state, did much better. I think really, in the end, I'm not so sure government policy did much. I think some of staying home and some of staying separated from people did slow it down, but I think in the end, New York got a, a full dose of this pandemic for a couple of reasons. 
you know, in February, they had 1.7 million international visitors return home. So you can see New York is much different than Kentucky or most of the states in that they had 1.7 million people come home from overseas. In fact, they had 139,000 people come from Italy alone. And unfortunately, we didn't really test these people or do anything to separate out those who were sick. And uh, that's probably how New York got so many uh, people sick all at once and ended up having you know, a much worse course than the rest of us. I think after seeing what has happened, one of the things we should learn from this is that one size doesn't fit all. You know, Kentucky is not New York City. Louisville is not Bowling Green. Bowling Green is not Tompkinsville or Princeton or Murray. I think really that good common sense and allowing power to devolve to the smallest governmental level and also back to the private property owner as well as the business owner, I think we could have handled this a lot better by having common sense rules in areas where, um, you know, according to your population size and the age of the people. If you look at this, one of the things we learned from New York is that nobody died between the ages of zero and 18. So this is good news for us. You know, we all worry, gosh, is this something that could wipe out the human race? The good news is this virus just killed no one between the ages of zero and 18. Between 18 and 45, you'll see occasional news cases, and they're very, very rare. That's why the news media hypes them. But between 18 and 45 in New York, 10 people died out of 100,000. So that's 0.01%. That is a very, very small number. And I don't say that to say that the virus wasn't deadly, but for younger people, it was uh, relatively benign, and a lot of our workforce is 18 to 45. Now, as you know, I'm beyond that age group, and so are a lot of people on the phone call, so it may not make us all feel too good that young people don't get it. But it does mean that a lot of our workers aren't at much risk, and that's a good thing. As most of you know, I ended up getting it, but I had it uh, with no symptoms. I didn't have a cough. I didn't have a fever. I didn't have body aches. I never had a cough, you know, anything. I would have not even gone to the doctor, basically. So I was very lucky. What they're discovering is when they do random sampling of people in New York now, they just test like 3,000 people randomly. They find that about 25% of them have antibodies or immunity to the virus. So this means millions of people in New York got it and didn't know it. But it also means that it's helping to get closer to what they call herd immunity or community immunity. Now, there were ways from that, but 25% is a, it's a, a pretty good uh, step forward on that. In Kentucky, it'll be much less because we just didn't have very much virus. It'll probably be when we test people. Some hospital workers might be 10% positive, but I think the general public's only going to be 2 to 3% positive. You know, if you visited Italy or China or visited, you know, went skiing and visited some friends in January and got sick, there's a chance you have it. And the blood test will be out and already is out, but you should be able to find it in the next couple of weeks where you can test and see if you're positive. If nothing else, it should give you some comfort if you want to travel again. You know, if your job takes you to New York City and you say, well, I'm never going again. If you've already had it, nothing is absolutely certain 100%, but there's a very good chance you have uh, immunity that will protect you for a while from this. As far as the economy, I'm worried about the economy. I think our governor's gone too far. He decided to have the draconian one-size-fits-all. But in doing so, he, uh, I think, overstepped his bounds. I introduced uh, the judge, Justin Walker, who's in testimony right now before the judiciary a few minutes ago, and he's up for an appellate court position. And he did something very important. In the middle of this, he said, we can't give unlimited power to our governor or our mayors. 
the mayor in Louisville blocked the meeting of a church that was just drive through. You sit in your own car, and he still said people couldn't go to worship that way. The governor then uh, sent the police to a church, didn't really go inside to see if they were socially spaced or what they were doing as a precaution, and it was a small amount of people in there, but he basically said take their license plates down and put them under home arrest for quarantine. Um, that's not my understanding of the First Amendment. I think it's one thing to give, have persuasion. You know, my in-laws are in their 80s. I would advise them not to go to church now, frankly, but I wouldn't put them in jail if they did. And so I think there's a much difference between persuasion and locking people up, particularly that kind of power shouldn't be directed to one person. The economic consequences of this are enormous. Our economy is struggling, 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 unemployment, 30 million people unemployed. And the other consequence is state revenues have plummeted. So the governor needs to get the thing back open. And I've been bugging him for a month now to open up. The main thing we need in our local communities, our small communities, is we've got to um, open up the hospitals. And you've got to let them do elective surgery. You know, half or more of the profit of a hospital is elective surgery. And if they can't do elective surgery, some of our rural hospitals were already teetering on bankruptcy before the virus. They're just not going to survive. And then you're going to find that people have a heart attack are going to be driving an hour to a hospital, and that's not good for anybody's health either. So the bottom line is we need to open up. Now, the Congress has allocated $3 trillion uh, to give to people, and our office is helping people get access to that. And if you're having trouble with the programs, we'll help to cut through the red tape and we'll do it. Uh, the only thing is, is I think we shouldn't ignore the big picture. You know, I think my job is to help Kentuckians get access to this. The big picture is also important that somebody say that the $3 trillion wasn't in a rainy day fund. It wasn't savings that the country had that they gave to the people. We basically borrowed it from China. And so, you know, the virus starts in China, and now we become more indebted to China. There's a great deal of irony there. The other thing is, is that we have been running about a trillion-dollar deficit every year. Now we've added $3 trillion to that. So this year the deficit will be $4 trillion. We're going to jump from $24 trillion total debt to $28 trillion. This is more than our GDP now. So we're over 100%. Our debt is over 100% of our gross national product. This is alarming and has only been this high one other time. It was in the middle of a war, and I think we can understand during World War II, but uh, a lot of us are thinking that you know, these pandemics do come up every decade or two, and as we've looked back, a lot of people forgot we had one in the mid-'70s, we had one in the mid-'60s, we had one in the mid-'50s, and then we had the really bad one back in 1918. So we just have to learn how to deal with this in the future and learn some things going forward. But the only way we're going to respond now is we've got to open the economy. I've said it on the Senate floor, and I'll say it again. There's no amount of money that we can print up or borrow that will rescue us. It's not a lack of money. It's a lack of commerce. We still have money. There are people sitting at home with money. We've got to get them out to spend it, to buy houses, to do things. But they can't, they can't and won't do it until we free them up. So really, anybody on this call who wants to get Kentucky going again needs to call and bug the governor because the governor is taking his good old time. I think he likes dictating the policies of how businesses operate. He's in some way infatuated with his own power now. And so he's going to need some encouragement to open it up. And we had very, very, very mild coronavirus in Kentucky. Some parts of Kentucky had zero. So what we need to do is we do need to get it opened up still be careful to protect our senior citizens and our uh, nursing homes, which is where more, most of the deaths came from, but we got to get going, and I'm going to do everything I can to get us opened up again. With that, I'll take some questions if you guys have questions. 
Thank you, Senator. Uh, this is Richard Wilson. I'm the Government Affairs Director for uh, Kentucky Realtors. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, first question, um, you know, what are, what are the long-term effects of this pandemic? Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously changed the way uh, our federal government conducts business uh, right now. But, but locally and at the state level, I, I guess, what are the long-term effects of this pandemic and, and how we uh, go about our daily lives uh, from here on out and how we conduct business from here on out? You know, I think uh, the key long-term negative effect is going to be the accumulation of so much debt. Interest payments on the debt are going to quickly rise and become the number one item in our budget. And they don't really buy anything, so we're going to have maybe a trillion dollars in interest. And as we have a trillion dollars we pay in interest, that's like, uh, you know, about 20% of what we spend each year is going to be spent on interest. That's going to crowd out all other spending. And I think it also ultimately devalues the currency. You can see a variety of responses to this. Sometimes you see an accentuation of the boom and bust cycle, and sometimes you see inflation like we did in the 70s. Um, I think there are a great deal of problems from this. The other thing that we could see from this is people could decide they're worried about governors having too much power. The governor has this power because the state legislature gave it to him, not during this pandemic, but in previous times they voted in emergency powers for governors. I think we need to revisit that, and the state legislature needs to revisit how much power because what's happened now is instead of you running your business the way you would just normally, you make the decisions, you're going to be told by the governor that you're allowed to be in business, but only if you do 10 things that he tells you to do. The question is, how long is he going to keep telling you those 10 things you have to do? And when does the business get back to being your business and not that you're simply a renter and the government owns you? So those are the things I worry about coming out of this. But the bottom line is we have massive unemployment, all of that. It could reverse in what they call a V-shaped recession where we're at the bottom and we'll quickly respond. I'm hopeful we'll do that. But if we open too slowly, if we have all these rules in place, um, my fear is that it'll be a prolonged recession. I do think that some businesses that were, you know, let's say you were already losing money and some this happens to good people. But let's say in January this year, you were debating whether you could make it and you lost money in January before this thing came out. It's going to be a struggle. And a lot of those businesses that were teetering on the edge probably won't come back even if we do give them. You know, we've already given a bunch of money out, but I think it'll be difficult for them to come back. So um, I worry about this, but the only thing I know is is we have to press forward with reopening, and federal government doesn't have as much power over this. Most of the things Trump has said, as he has acknowledged, have been advisories. And I'm all for persuasion and letting you know you should be careful with your, your parents and grandparents in their 80s, um, and those precautions should take place. But for the most part, these ought to be things that you persuade people to do, not things that you promise to incarcerate people if they don't do your way. But I am worried about long-lasting rules on businesses as we open up. But the only way you'll get away from um, too much control by the governor is you got to tell him you're unhappy. So people do need to call the governor, and they need to try to impress upon him that you have to open up, but also that you want to open up on your terms, not necessarily him creating a whole new set of rules for business. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, so our, our next question uh, comes from from Donna. Uh, has there been any talk of maybe uh, forgiveness of, of accrued interest from business loans or mortgage loans that are being put on delayed payments right now? 
You know, that's a good question. If we're talking about private loans, you know, that's between you and the lender. And I think some of the lenders um, actually understood this early on. And I think more lenders would have done this had we stayed away from such a big government bailout. If, um, you know, if I were your bank and you had a restaurant and I know you were going to be no customers for two months, I would have probably not forgiven your loan, but I would have taken those two months and added them on the end of your loan and just say, don't pay interest or anything for these two months, but you're going to have to pay it at the end, knowing that if I foreclose on a restaurant, it becomes worthless. The building might be worth something, but even a building that used to house a restaurant, unless you get another restaurant in there, may not be of much value. And, you know, banks can't run restaurants very well, so really they're better off keeping you in business and deferring the loan. As far as the government loans, you know, most of that PPP money, I think people will try to obey the rules so that it becomes a grant, not a loan. There is some concern, though, that a lot of people applied for this PPP money thinking, oh, well, I'll follow the rules and it'll become a grant. But they're having difficulty getting their employees to stay with them because unemployment now pays better than uh, work. And I was for expanding unemployment. That's the one thing I actually was for. But the problem is if you make unemployment insurance the wage for being unemployed – greater than the wage for working, you'll get a lot of people who won't work. And that's what restaurants are finding now. I can't get anybody to go back to work because, you know, I talked to a guy the other day. He says, yeah, I was getting $300 a week. Now I get 600 in addition, and that's more than I make for any of the jobs I've ever had. And so, you know, that's, he's not a bad person, but it's just he's like any other person. He responds to economic signals, and people are saying, well, here's some extra money. So there is going to be forgiveness on some on the federal stuff. Um, I think it's more on the principal than it is on, on the interest. But, uh, you know, I, I, I predict in the end that most of the people who get the PPP, even if the government disputes whether they obeyed the rules, I think probably what happens is they'll be default to the PPP program, you know, because if the people go bankrupt, there's not going to have any money anyway. So I suspect most of that PPP money, which is about a half a trillion dollars, will end up just being added to the debt. And so almost all the money we've handed out will, uh, I think, be taken up as new debt for our country. Yeah, I got you. Um, so, so going back to what you were discussing earlier about opening back up the economy, I mean, of, of course, all of our members want to go back to um, basically the way things were, having open houses um, and, and that sort of thing. Are there areas of concern, in your opinion, uh, that need to be addressed before we, I guess, technically, uh, quote unquote, open up the bit, open back up the economy. I think most of these things are common sense, and every individual will be different. If I were 25 years old and I was uh, showing a house, um, you know, for your sake, I don't even think probably you need to wear a mask. But if you're showing it to an 80-year-old couple, they may not be happy if you're not wearing a mask for a while. Hopefully that will go away over time. But I wouldn't mandate that. I would let you make that decision. Uh, if you're going to church and you're 80 years old, you might not want to go to a 2,000-person church unless they've got a special area where they let uh, those who are older sit apart. But the one reason we shouldn't dictate rules is that if a man and a wife have seven kids and they're around each other in their house, there's no reason to force them to sit apart in church. All seven or eight of them should sit together in church. And if they're you know, uh, younger and they've already been commingling with people at school and they want to sit together, we should let them sit together. And then the people who are at risk you know, may well be wearing masks six months or a year from now. But I don't like the idea of mandating it to all. But in your business, you'll figure this out. And the market will dictate it. 
And if you're showing a house to a 20-something-year-old couple and they show up not wearing a mask and you're 20-something or 30-something and you think the virus is gone and your decision is you're not wearing a mask, I think you'll make that decision based on that. But I sure don't want the governor telling you you have to wear masks for the rest of your life. I mean, you think about selling a house or showing something to somebody, a lot of uh, engaging people is the the way they see your face respond and covering up your face, I'm guessing, is not real good for sales, you know. Maybe good for highway robbery, but less likely to be good for sales. <laughs> so, uh, so Senator, now that we've seen uh, multiple uh, recovery packages or relief packages passed by, uh, passed by Congress, is there anything that you would like to see in, in future relief packages? You know, the main thing is, is there is no money. There's no rainy day fund. There's no savings. The Democrats are now saying they want to bail out all of the state governments that are short of money, but have been chronically spending too much money. This would be New York, California, Illinois, primarily, but even Kentucky, you know, has had trouble with its pension system. My point is there is no money. But my second point is, is if even if you create and borrow money and give it to states, if they don't uh, change their decision-making process, if they don't make better decisions, if you give them money, they'll continue to make bad decisions. So like if you gave Kentucky enough money to fix its pension system by printing up the money or borrowing it in Washington, does that mean they're going to fix their pension system? No, they'd have no incentive to fix it. They'll just keep running it into the ground, and 10 years from now we'll have the same problem again. So I, I think it's not a good idea to try to send money to states and localities. The other thing is, is right now their only incentive, the only reason Bashir is even considering opening things up as he's seeing his coffers are going to zero. Nobody's paying any state income tax and nobody's paying any state sales tax because he's locked us up at home. And so he realizes he has to run a balanced budget and a lot of his costs are fixed. But I guarantee you he's going to be moaning in about a month saying, oh, I need a bailout. I need a bailout the coronavirus. Well, he was part of the problem because he wouldn't see fit to try to have a more reasonable approach instead of locking everybody up. He should have really tried to protect our senior citizens and our nursing homes. Uh, instead, everybody got locked up and the economy went to, to nil. So, um, you know, we're going to have that, but how we do it, I really hope that we'll uh, try to avoid government mandates and edicts. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, so, so many of our, uh, many of our local associations, uh, we have 20 local uh, realtor associations around the state and many of them are set up as 501 c6 uh, organizations uh, those types of uh, those types of entities were left out of uh, the previous relief package have you heard any discussion uh, if they're if that if 501 c6 organizations will be in future uh, relief packages well, we're very aware of this because, you know, the chamber has the same complaint and different private-public partnerships have some of these same complaints. So I've sent a letter uh, to Senator McConnell about it. We've discussed it with him in his office. He's aware of it. And the question is, is there going to be another package and where does the money come from? But I, I have advocated for the 501c6s to be included. Um, and we'll see where it goes. I don't think they can do it. My staff looked at the law on it pretty explicitly, just didn't put them in there, and so we don't think the Treasury can make that determination. The other thing that's just extraordinary about this is, you know, we put hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars out there. 
the money goes away in about a week or so. It, it turns out, and I know this is going to shock people, but if you put free money in an account and say apply for it, people will. And so all of it was gone, like $350 billion went in a week. And it turns out a lot of bigger companies got it and smaller people didn't. So we they did another $484 billion, and my understanding is they think it's going to be gone in a week. But we have to realize the ramifications of this because we don't really have any of that money. We're not like giving you the savings of the country. We're we're borrowing it uh, or printing it up, both of which I think have some terrible uh, repercussions down the road. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so I w I w we want to get your opinion on on on, on something. Uh, NAR's chief economist uh, said yesterday that personal savings rate increased in the first quarter 152%, which is a good thing. Uh, mortgage rates are near all-time lows and can spur new buyers. However, mortgage forbearance may be created, may have created an unintended consequence with lenders who are increasing their requirements to protect themselves, like requiring a 20% down payment and much higher credit scores. Can you, can you speak to that or have an opinion on that? Is it uh, mainly you think private banks are doing this, or is it uh, governmental rules changing? It sounds like it's the marketplace changing. Steve, can you respond to that, Steve Stevens? Well, yeah, yeah but is, I'm, I'm questioning. My yeah, question is: this the government, or is it more the marketplace? Some of the big lenders, some of the biggest, you know, the big four are changing their um, their requirements quite a lot. You know, the J.P. Morgans and those kind of. Uh, folks who are the big lenders, um, you know, they're trying to protect themselves. So they're, you know, increasing some of these requirements. And although, you know, everybody loves the attractive mortgage rates, and that should be bringing new buyers in. And as you say, there are there is money available, you know, folks are out there. And as our realtors could tell you, you know, they are still, you know, selling homes, even in the midst of all of this. However, you know, this is probably creating a bit more of a problem because uh, trying to come up with a 20 cent, 20% down payment, uh, you know, and a credit score well over 700 uh, or, or so uh, could be uh, limiting. Yeah, I'm all for um, getting rid of some of the requirements, particularly on local banks. And we could use this period of uh, this epidemic as an excuse to say, Maybe we should have less stringent, not more stringent, but actually less stringent government telling us who can get a loan and how much they have to have down um, and let more of the, the banks and uh, those loaning the money make more decisions locally. Because I hear this all the time from local lenders saying, you know, if someone moved to town, they were a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or an executive at the business – a lot of times loans were extended to them, even though they didn't have much put down in the house because they had a good income. And so, you know, most of the time not having much down may not be a good idea, but if you have a good high income and you know within a year or two you'll be able to have savings, letting someone get started in a house at that point actually probably happened all the time in, in communities across the country. Um, so I think maybe as a group, if y'all would look at some of the, the extra rules that were placed after uh, – you know, the, the uh, rules that were placed after 2008 and 2009, maybe we could look at some exemptions, and I'll have my staff look at that too to see if there's any uh, things we could do to try to spur um, investment and people buying houses by getting uh, relaxing some of the, the rules that, that occurred under, uh, uh, under the previous uh, regime from 2009. 
Thank you. Uh, so I guess one one final question for you, Senator. Um, many of our many many realtors as I guess serve as um, counselors or sounding boards for their clients, uh, and and a lot of times they're asked uh, questions during uh, you know the, the whole process of buying a buying a house. What advice would you give uh, to, to realtors uh, that they could pass on to their clients uh, that are looking to buy buy their first home or buy, buy a home in general? Uh, what advice would you give them right now as, as far as buying a house in, in the state of uh, the economy? You know, I think that um, fundamentally before all this thing got going, you know, our economy was in the best shape it had been in in 50 years record low unemployment, economic growth is going great. And then we kind of did this to ourselves. It's a self-inflicted wound. And some say we had to, and some like me say we could have done a lot less stringent shutdown and, and still had the same result without crippling the economy. But I think the fundamentals are good. Um, when you look at our country, there's a great website that I like called humanprogress.org. And it talks about how amazing the world is that we live in. Um, even with all this stuff going on, you'd think, oh, things are so terrible. You know, longevity is greater than it's ever been with antibiotics and anesthesia and now even antiviral drugs. People are living and doing so much better, even with this pandemic. Life now compared to 100 years ago, you know, the same amount of dollars in constant dollars, you buy seven times as much food as you did in 1919. So 100 years later, you can buy seven times more food for the same amount of dollars. That's an amazing feat. Uh, the same with clothing and everything else. So, I mean, there are a lot of good things out there. And I guess I think you're right that as you're selling houses, you need to be someone who is an optimist and, and have this infectious optimism that you can spread to people. And there's a lot of good news items out there. And I think it's worth looking at that website, too, because then when you're talking to people and they're like, oh, I don't know, because – I remember when I got out of school, somebody showed me and they said, oh, this is where all these people live. You can never live there. And it's like, really? It's, it's so bad that I'm never going to be able to be successful. And I remember seeing, being so disappointed. But you're right. People do look to uh, men and women selling houses and leaders in the community for, for that optimism. But, you know, above and beyond all this, while I fight against the government, I'm fighting against the debt, I'm still very optimistic about our country if we can stick to what, what did make us great, and that was capitalism, largely leaving people alone to make uh, you know, sale, the sale of whatever they're buying or selling or creating. So I'm, I'm still pretty optimistic on this. And uh, you know, the reason I say get involved, and I warn you about the governor, is I fear that the governor is going to make it a lot worse on us as he really creeps along slowly. And uh, I think he's going to listen more to, 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 to you guys than he is to me. So, uh, but I would let him know. And for goodness sake, you're not doing stuff with thousands of people. You're trying to show one or two people. You're probably showing a couple and maybe their kids a house most of the time. It's not like you have a hundred people. You're showing a house. I know open houses have some, but even an open house, you know, you could have someone standing at the door. And if you've got several people inside and you don't want to have a crowd, you could walk some of them around the perimeter outside while some are walking inside during an open house and, you know, and really that's something y'all will figure out. It may be in a year, none of that needs to be done, or even in six months, the thing could be gone. 
Um, but the bottom line is we don't want the governor to stick us with all these rules that we have forever. So I, I'd be very careful about letting him still exert so much power. And I'd also talk to your state representatives about looking at that emergency legislation that gave him so much power. I would try to say that most of that legislation should, most of those decisions should have to be split between him and the legislature where they'd have to vote, you know, to approve his orders because we just gave him way too much power. And these people have decided, you know, they love power. Once they get it, they don't want to give it up. But uh, no, don't get discouraged. And, uh, but we just got to get it open. I think things will, will get moving again. Senator, I know, I know I told you that was the last question, but I do have one final question and this, this question comes from our uh, association president, Lester Sanders. Uh, student loan debt relief continues uh, to put stress on, on some of our potential first-time home buyers. Do you see any relief for that in the future? Yeah, a couple things. We have something called the HELPER Act, H-E-L-P-E-R Act. And what it does is it allows you to uh, deduct college tuition. So let's say you're going to college, you can pay for it out of an IRA if you're going to college. If you've already got it and you've got debt, it allows you to put your money into some kind of debt-free vehicle like an IRA or a 401k, but then take it out without any penalties and pay your college debt. You know, if you're in a 30% tax bracket or a 33% tax bracket, that's a third less cost for college. I've talked to a lot of college presidents. They're all in on this. I've talked to students with a lot of loans. A lot of grad students have a lot of big loans, and uh, people are excited about this. I still have yet to get my first Democrat co-sponsorship, but we're trying. But this would be a way, and I keep trying to tell the Democrats, we are not going to do free college because, one, there is no free lunch. There is no free college. Somebody's got to pay for it. But we might be able to do tax-deductible college, and I think that would be a big step forward. The other thing is, is there's a lot of businesses competing, at least three months ago, they were all competing for a shrinking uh, pool of workers, and many businesses were actually offering uh, that the company would help them pay off their student loans, and we've allowed that number to go up, too, so the companies can contribute more than they used to, and it doesn't count as income to the individual. I think right now, if your company gives you $5,000 a year to help you with student loans, I think you have to count it as income. We'd let it be counted just as a, a tax-free gift, and you wouldn't be charged as income for that. So there's a lot of good things we're doing. And then the one final thing on education that we may have learned from the pandemic is that, you know what, a lot of these kids can learn from home, and that's, you know, a lot cheaper than college. And I'm not saying we give up on college, but it may be that we can bring the price down if there are some kids who are willing to do online education that maybe the online courses could cost a lot less than what college costs. That's what we really need to get to because then there'd be a lot of competition. That also means allowing uh, some new universities to come online, online universities. If you have more, just like anything else, you have more supply, the price will come down. But uh, those are some of the things we're working on. And uh, hopefully in the next couple months, we'll be able to meet in person. But until that time, uh, good luck, everybody. Senator, thank you for joining us today. Uh, with that, I will turn it back over to Mr. Sanders. Senator Paul, we again uh, certainly appreciate the time that you took to spend with us today. And uh, we know you're busy uh, working and uh, certainly working on our behalf in a lot of cases. And so again, just thank you for being here. And uh, if realtors can help you, let us know what we need to uh, do as well. So, uh, and uh, Lonnie, again, thank you for coordinating this and making it uh, happen uh, 
as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Paul. And that's going to do it for this episode eight of the KYR podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, We hope to continue to bring you relevant issues. If you have any suggestions on folks we need to talk to or topics we need to broach, please send me an email at pdelrio at kyrrealtors.com. Stay safe out there and let's keep lifting as we climb. Thank you.